From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon, a very, very good afternoon to you. It's Kate Turkington, 101.9 High FM. Well, I'm full of beans, I'm full of life. I'm just back from the most hectic but wonderful trip to Ireland, Scotland and England. And I'm going to be telling you about some of the adventures I've had and also maybe about some of the things perhaps you can think about doing. Still the most wonderful travel destinations. And I'm going to start talking about Ireland first. I have a particular affinity for Ireland. My late husband was Irish. My One of my daughters, Tara, was born in Ireland, although she left and arrived in South Africa at the age of 11 months and is a devoted and passionate South African uh, to this day. And I also lived in Ireland for seven years. And Ireland... Perhaps, I don't know, there are so many countries who welcome visitors, but the Irish, perhaps of all people, are the most welcoming people on earth. They are genuinely delighted to see you. Before I tell you about some of the things I did and the places I went to, though, I wanted to tell you about St. Patrick, because why are Ireland and St. Patrick and the Shamrock so closely related? Why do we have a St. Patrick's Day when people go mad? I mean, in New York, everybody claims to be Irish. They dye the beer green. They paint the buses green. Everybody, it seems, likes to have a little bit of Irish somewhere in their uh, lineage. Well, St. Patrick, I, want, I just want to tell you a bit of a backstory about St. Patrick before I tell you about Ireland. Rome, let, I'm going to give you a wee bit of a history lesson. Rome fell about 400 years A.D. after uh, Christ died, and then, of course, fell to the Visigoths, and then, of course, the whole Roman Empire began to crumble, and the Roman army withdrew from Britain because they were desperately needed elsewhere to keep the defences going. So what happened? This gave opportunities for the Celts of Ireland to make raids on Britain's shores, and they used to arrive in war parties in their skin-covered coracles. They're the little boats made of animal skin, which are amazingly waterproof. I've actually, well, sailed, uh, um, tottered about in uh, one. And they used to snatch thousands of young prisoners for the slave markets of Ireland. You know, the slave markets weren't only from Africa and the Caribbean and other places. There was a very healthy slave market in Ireland. And one of the young people they snatched was the 15-year-old son of a very wealthy Briton, a Romanized Briton, and that was Patrick. And he became a slave, and he tended sheep. He was a captive for six years. He was very lonely. We know all this from his writings he left behind. 
He finally became a passionate advocate against the slave trade, and then he had a vision, and the vision told him, go back to Ireland and take Christianity to the Irish people. And, of course, not only did he drive out the snakes, it's true, there are no snakes in Ireland, but he took Christianity to Ireland. So that's why St. Patrick and Ireland are closely associated. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there, and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, Kate Turkington. I was telling you there about St. Patrick and Ireland and why St. Patrick. And in fact, he's actually buried in a town in Northern Ireland called Downpatrick. There's a beautiful cathedral there. And his grave, it's just like a slab of stone in the cemetery there. And it was a cold day. It was a sunny day. I think the temperature was about 12 degrees. But I want you to imagine spring in Ireland at the moment, the green fields, the little white, fluffy lambs bouncing about the fields and daffodils, fields and fields of daffodils and primroses and the hedges of broom and gorse. Everywhere was ablaze with colour, bluebells and just this one slab of granite in the middle of the churchyard where St. Patrick is uh, buried. And then I went to the very first church he ever built, which is called St. Patrick's Church Saul. Now, Saul, S-A-U-L. And he built the very first Christian church in Ireland in 432 AD. Just think about that, all those hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Anyway, that's St. Uh, Patrick. Then we did a trip along the Antrim Coast Look coast road. I mean, Chapman's Peak is beautiful. Think Antrim Coast Road times 10 of Chapman's Peak. It is regarded as one of the great tourist routes of the world, and it's one road trip you'll remember forever. I've done it many, many times when I lived there. It runs along the coast from just outside Belfast, the capital of Northern Ireland, for about 40 kilometres, and the road actually follows the coastline all along, and some parts of the road are built between 100-metre high cliffs and the sea. It is the most spectacular road. There's hardly any traffic uh, on it, very narrow, and the waves crashing and the wind whistling and wildflowers everywhere. The road gets very, very narrow uh, at times, so you have to be very careful if there's another uh, car coming. But What's so wonderful, it's not hardly used at all. So it's great if you are doing uh, a trip. And where does it go to? Well, it goes to all sorts of places. But my two favourite, favourite places, Dunluce Castle. If you are or were a Game of Thrones fan, 
Dunluce Castle. I think it was Winterfell. I'm not quite sure. It was one of the great locations for Game of Thrones. And just imagine this centuries, centuries-old castle. It, it perches on a cliff overlooking the uh, Atlantic, been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was actually the house of Greyjoy. That's, they filmed all that stuff uh, there. And it dates from the 16th and 17th centuries. And <laughs> it was the home at various times, of the clans. The clans were always warring with one another. Four clans think tribes, so the Zulus aren't fighting the whoever, whomsoever. The McQuillans, in this case, were fighting the McDonald's, so whoever happened to be victorious at the time lived in the castle. And it is the most enchanting place. Just Google Dunluce Castle or you can go to my website. I will be writing a blog uh, and I've, I'm going to be putting lots and lots of pictures up so you can find all these photos for yourself taken mostly by my daughter Tara who's a fantastic uh, photographer. Then from Dunluce Castle the road winds along to, and I'm sure you've heard of it, the Giant's Causeway. What's the Giant's Causeway? Well, it's difficult to describe, but it's columns and columns of basalt. They're like great stone columns sticking up in the, into the sky from the sea. They look human-made. They look as if they'd be made by human. But no, war and weather actually made them. Of course, the Irish believed that there was a big fight between their giant, Finn McCall, and another giant who lived on the Isle of Man, and they just threw these great pillars at each other across the sea, and that's how the giant's causeway was formed. It's one of the wonders of the world really worth uh, going to see. And then after, after that, we went to Bushmills Whiskey, distillery. It's the oldest whiskey distillery in the world. Think about this. Next time you have a whiskey, it was built in 1608. 1608. So it's been there for what? 16, 17, 18, 19. It's been there for well over 400 years. And this you may or may not know. If you're drinking Irish whiskey, you spell whiskey with an E. W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. If you're drinking Scots whiskey, Scotch whiskey, it's W-H-I-S-K-Y without the E. Why does Irish whiskey have an E in the word whiskey? Because the Irish say the E is for excellence. That's a touch of the Blarney for you, and I'll be telling you about the uh, Blarney Stone at some stage too. So, in Belfast also is one of the, how to describe it, it's one of the best tourist experiences I have been anywhere in the world. It's called the Titanic 
experience Belfast and it's this wonderful building it's won so many architectural awards that's a cross between an iceberg for obvious reasons remember the Titanic was sunk by an iceberg and the prow of a ship and it's also got a five star shape design because the line was the five star ship ship line and you go inside and you are totally Maybe this isn't the unintentional pun. You are immersed in the experience. It's not like going in and looking at museum ex- um, ex- exhibits. You are totally immersed in the experience. So you're taken into the building of the Titanic and you go on a ride through the bowels of the, the Titanic. I think the Titanic was seven stories high. Think of that. Think how big. I mean, if I were to stand against the base of the ship, the Titanic, I would look pretty much like an ant. That's how big that ship was. And, of course, it was built. It would never, never uh, sink. And you follow the whole story of the Titanic. You go up all seven floors of the uh, experience, and each floor is a different experience. At one time, you'll be in a first-class cabin, and the the steward will be offering you tea or or cakes. Another time, you might be driving rivets yourself into the hull of that ship that was built in Belfast. And just think about this. Life, I think, is very random. When the Titanic was built, they launched her, and out she went into the river and then to sea and they found a tiny defect with her so she went back to the dock to get it fixed just think maybe had she not gone back to the dock she wouldn't have met that iceberg in the middle of the Atlantic and all those thousand or more people perished perchance and finally In the Titanic experience, you stand on the deck and it's cold and you can feel, you can feel that iceberg coming. Absolutely wonderful. If and when you go to Belfast, Titanic experience, put it absolutely top of your list. And I'm even going to re-watch the movie of the Titanic just to, and how well they, they got it apart from uh, the romance and whatever, just to see how amazing that ship. They said it could never sink, the biggest ship in the world. And in 1912, it hit an iceberg and sank, and over a thousand people died. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, I'm Kate Turkington, and I've got a great privilege now of talking to somebody who has made such a difference to South Africa and to many of our lives. You may not know how, what, why, when, but when we talk, you'll hear about some of the things he's been doing. And just to remind you, this year marks the 10th year of Nelson Mandela's passing and 10 years 
of the Nelson Mandela Foundation. And joining me now is Salo Hatang, Chief Officer of the Nelson Mandela Foundation. So I think let's start by just reminding us of what exactly the Nelson Mandela Foundation is and what it does. Well, thank you very much, uh, Kate, and uh, thanks. Uh, uh, it's, it's good to be speaking to you. The, the Nelson Mandela Foundation was established by Nelson Mandela in 1999. And uh, when he established it, it was uh, to do with uh, stuff that he couldn't do uh, while he was president, uh, projects that were close to his heart, but he couldn't do more of uh, those projects. For example, dealing with infrastructure, development of infrastructure. You remember those days when Madiba used to call CEOs of companies and ask them to go and build a crash here, mm-hmm. go and build a, a clinic there, a school there. And uh, it was uh, almost uh, like a, a person on a mission to do development work, particularly in rural areas. Then uh, in 2007, between 2007 and 2009, we changed our mandate to be threefold. We, we then uh, focused on Mandela Day, which is coming up uh, on the 18th of July, Madiba's birthday. And this year marks uh, the 105th birthday of Madiba. And, uh, and, and I think with uh, a, a, a challenge for all of us is to ensure that we mark Madiba's legacy um, on the on its 105th uh, uh, birthday, that we must do everything we can to ensure that his legacy lives on, uh, but that it lives on through us. And that's the message for uh, Mandela Day. The second part of the work is what we call memory work, where we have Madiba's archives. And I want to implore all your, your listeners to come and visit us at uh, 107 Central Street, because there you will be able to see Madiba's papers, the letters he wrote while he was in prison, notes he made uh, while he was um, uh, in negotiations, and the the struggles he went through in terms of ensuring that he built a country that he was dreaming of. The third part of our work is what we call dialogue work, and this uh, this is where we convene dialogues uh, to break uh, this uh, wherever there's a log jam and uh, to bring about a, a group of people who can be able to we create a safe space, in other words, for people to be able to um, have dialogue. Part of that work uh, was was actually influenced by my predecessor Ahmad Dango, who when he he said we were going to be doing dialogue work. Madiba called him to his office and he said, I, I hope you understand what you mean by dialogue. When you have two people in the room and, uh, and they, they enjoy each other, they want to be there, that's not a dialogue, it's a chat. Real dialogue is when you put together people in a room who don't want to be there. They, they don't greet each other and they actually um, uh, want you to then broker some kind of uh, negotiation. And uh, to remind the listeners, as part of our dialogue, that the pinnacle of our dialogue is uh, the Nelson Mandela annual lecture. You remember that we hosted people like uh, President Obama, the UN Secretary General. We hosted last year, we hosted the Prime Minister of Barbados, uh, Mia Moodley. So all these are dialogues that we then host. But in, in there, in the dialogues, is also the work that we do on early childhood development. 
We help uh, with, uh, we run a survey with government, with the Department of uh, Basic Education and Social Development, where we did a survey on how many um, early childhood development centers are out there. And we also want to, uh, wherever we can, with the donors uh, who come forward, we ask them to help with infrastructure. We help with uh, policy development around early childhood development. And, uh, and that's the stuff that we do to ensure that the future is brighter having given the children an opportunity um, to to get the best education, basic education in terms of little ones uh, at, uh, at, uh, at an early childhood development center uh, for them to get uh, the best uh, opportunities to grow um, and see what's possible in future. Okay, Stella, just coming back to Mandela Day, which is the 18th of July, it's the day to give back. How can all of us get involved? I mean, what can we do, just ordinary people? You know, the, this year the theme is uh, it's in your hands. And uh, being in your hands means that you determine what you would like to do to ensure that we, you progress our nation. And wherever you are in the world, because I know your program is just not uh, limited to South Africa, uh, it's also online that people can then follow it from wherever in the world. So wherever you are on the 18th of July and beyond, we're saying do something in honor of Madiba. Our focus this year, however, is on climate change and food security. So on climate change, we're saying if each one of us planted a tree as a corporate, as individuals, particularly if it's fruit trees in schools, in early childhood development centers, in universities, they can help supplement in terms of fruit that will come off um, the, the trees. Uh, but also indigenous uh, trees uh, in your country, if you have indigenous trees, just plant those because we want to reverse our impact on the climate and, uh, and therefore not uh, have that much of a, a bad or negative in, in impact on, uh, on, on our uh, environment. So that's, uh, that's the work that we do. We would like uh, people to focus on that they try and, uh, and plant trees, but also to be um, planting vegetable uh, gardens. Yes. You know, Kate, one of the things that we, 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 we realize is how um, many people still go to bed hungry. Mm-hmm. Many families are still not able to feed themselves. I was once that child who could go to bed hungry. Um, the longest I remember not having access to food was two days, and my mother could just not provide. And I think uh, the, the, I, I, I like reminding people that poverty can be humiliating. Mm-hmm. And as a mother, whenever you have to then uh, face your children and say, unfortunately, I cannot provide food, uh, for you, I cannot be able to to give you access to sanitary pads. It, uh, I can't give you. I can't. I can't. That can lead to uh, parents not being able to even parent well because they do not have access. They are always in need and in want. And that's why the work we do now uh, this year, we're saying let's try our best to deal with climate change and food security because it cannot be right that many throw away food when many more, a lot more, do not have access to food. So this year, we'd like to encourage corporates, go out there, plant trees, help plant uh, vegetable gardens, provide food for those who do not have, but don't just do it on the 18th of July. Um, 
as, as, the, as per the slogan from a few years ago, as it goes, that we should go out there and uh, make a change in the lives of people, but don't just do it on Mandela Day, make every day a Mandela Day. Oh, I love that, make every day a Mandela Day. Now, Silo, you're, you're, the Nelson Mandela Foundation is about to start a new podcast series. Tell us about that. You know, this is uh, an innovative idea from one of my colleagues, uh, Neo Mokhopa, who, who came up with this idea that we need to be moving with the times. For us to be able to, to do the work that we do, we have to then be uh, moving technology. And I know that you are strong in terms of um, ensuring that people move with tech uh, yourself, Kate. And, uh, and I think it's important that we, we move with technologies and deliver the legacy in the way that people understand best. Yes. Young people can consume it uh, in the best way they can. And it, it, it helps us also remain relevant. Because for as long as you have a legacy that's not delivered in a way that people can consume it easily, it leads us to an, inst- an environment where we become irrelevant as an institution. Exactly. And that's what we're trying to do, to ensure that the podcast will be doing that work of here is our legacy, it's accessible to young people, uh, Madiba's legacy can become uh, something that they can use in their daily lives. So the podcast is uh, uh, the, the current uh, crop of of, uh, of the podcast that we have is of interviews. Uh, there's one that uh, recently I listened to uh, that Neo sent to me, which was a poem, but a poem in the form of a prayer, a prayer for how uh, the, we want the country that we dream of. Uh, to be delivered, but that it can be delivered just uh, that we leave it to the ancestors and to God, but that we must try and do our best here on earth um, to deliver that uh, uh, the, the, the world that can look after the most vulnerable. You know, that's you, you actually preempted a question I was going to ask you because I, I, I was going to say to you, it's 10 years since Mandela's passing. Is the legacy fading? Is he still relevant? You know, the, it's, a, it's a question that we, we struggle with uh, on the day to day. As you know, many, many young people uh, disavow the legacy. Uh, they believe that the legacy might have taken us uh, through a path that we shouldn't have gone down, a path that didn't deliver much in terms of uh, transformation, uh, that can uh, deliver issues uh, around the economy and uh, issues around land and other related matters. We believe that the legacy remains relevant. We believe that this legacy remains the one that uh, can help us reimagine the world we want to see not just uh, be reminiscing about the Madiba of the past, but asking ourselves, what does the future hold? Do you know? Who do we want to become in future? And I think if we are to think like that, it means that even for young people who are beginning to disavow this legacy, we will then be going back to them to say, you don't have to disavow the legacy. Make it work for you. Because here's Madiba who was struggling at the time that he did. And uh, I can tell you, Kate, that uh, I hosted uh, a lot of uh, young people here at the foundation. And I showed them Madiba's archives. And I let Madiba speak from the other, uh, the other world uh, where he, he, could, he, even though he can't speak to us today, he can then 
deliver his message through the archive. And it was through that that uh, I had young people then saying, no, we never understood the, the legacy to be like that. The kind of education that Madiba wanted uh, uh, to see. And these are things that we need to always try our best to imagine as possible, to imagine as uh, something that we can live up to. And I think uh, the, the relevance of the legacy is in our hands for it to be to become. And it's always coming to be what we want it to be. When we, I mean, I've just come back from a trip to Ireland and Scotland and England, and I cannot tell you, Stella, how many times, sometimes it was graffiti, sometimes it was meant to be there, Mandela's face appears not only in Belfast and the walls there, in the most surprising places, and people still revere the name of Mandela. I don't know if we'll ever see his like again. I, You know, one of the things that I, I've been arguing about for years now uh, is that, uh, and in fact, I should uh, say, make this point, that uh, for this year to mark the 10th anniversary, our, our research team then uh, will be uh, deploying these uh, Perspex uh, uh, boards where people can write and reflect on Madiba's legacy. They'll go to communities and then they'll be brought to the foundation. And the theme, uh, and I, I'm paraphrasing it uh, because I yes. don't remember it word for word. Listeners, I know Shai FM uh, listeners might just go for me to say, no, he, he lied uh, a little bit. Uh, that's not how uh, the theme goes. The theme uh, is uh, something about um, Nelson Mandela is dead. How do you make his legacy live through you? Mm-hmm. And and if we are to think like that, it means that each one of us can be little Mandelas. Because in our conduct, we can then at least try our best to make the legacy come true. And, uh, and we have to, have to make sure that uh, people understand that uh, this legacy is not static. It's a legacy that you need to make it what you want it to be. And un- until such time that you think like that, I-, I don't see us being able to do the difficult work that needs to be done uh, for people to be able to, um, to, to, to see the legacy living for them. And whenever I travel, it doesn't matter where I go. The moment I say I'm the CEO of the Nelson Mandela Foundation, the, the, the immigration officer stops on his tracks uh, to ask about Madiba. Yes. Um, and even before I was CEO of the Nelson Mandela Foundation, it was my experience always that people will then, the moment you say South Africa, it's synonymous with Nelson Mandela. Yes. And they would then be saying, oh, the country of Nelson Mandela. And I think we should then be owning that legacy to make it our own, to say this legacy belongs to us. When we fail that legacy of Nelson Mandela, we fail the legacy of the future because then corruption, crime, xenophobia, and uh, women and child abuse, uh, GBV of all kinds in terms of uh, also um, how we, 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 we can be homophobic. All these things um, then taint the legacy that we want to see. And that's what we uh, I worry about, that uh, we need to then not just be, uh, be praised from outside, that those outside believe in us, but we don't believe in ourselves enough.
exactly. And now, Sarah, you've been 10 years, well, you've been working for 15 years uh, with mm. the Nelson Mandela Foundation. Can I ask you, what are your personal highlights? You know, I, 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 I kind of thought that question was going to come, but I, I <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think the, um, there's a few that I can uh, think of. Renovating Madiba's uh, home, uh, previous home where he stayed from 1992 to 1998. I don't know if you've been able to visit Sanctuary Mandela, Kate. No, I haven't. You, you're going to have to go visit. It's Madiba's home that we've converted and turned it into, it, it, had, it had dilapidated and we've now been able to raise funds and, and renovate it. It has a restaurant and it has a, a, a hotel. Um, which we we want to see as a home that people can then visit, get to enjoy the food that Madiba used to enjoy, and also be able to uh, interact with some of the people that uh, uh, worked uh, for him, such as the chef who cooked for Madiba for over 20 years, oh. um, works at the at the at the home. So that's um, that's something that I'd say you, you you need to then come visit. But also your 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 listeners must come visit uh, this home because it's where, uh, where it's exactly is it, Sello? It's in it's, it's in Houghton. It's in uh, in uh, uh, close to the Nelson Mandela Foundation. Okay. It's on Thirteenth uh, Avenue, uh, number four Thirteenth Avenue. So uh, you can go there for coffee on Sundays. They have jazz Sundays. Um, so you're welcome to, to take your family and friends. Oh, wow. I know you and your children and your grandchildren, how close you are to your grandchildren. Take them there so that they enjoy uh, jazz on Sundays, 11 to 3. That's my pride and joy. That's something that I worked very hard with my colleagues uh, to achieve in the last 10 years. The, the second one was uh, uh, one of the dreams that uh, Ahmed Kathrada had was for us to be able to host Dialogues, uh, uh, rather the annual lecture in a public platform that's big in a stadium. Yes. And, uh, and as you remember, 2018, we were able to host the biggest lecture ever, uh, where we had 15,000 people at the Wanderer Stadium and many more who were following it, uh, uh, online. I was there that's with Barack Obama. Yes. You were there physically. Yeah. With yes. Barack Obama. Yeah. So, so that's uh, that's something that uh, I would say um, it's uh, also part of that ten years. But ten years, that ten years also came with uh, the biggest challenge that we had as a country and the world uh, when COVID hit. And I remember that uh, my colleagues and I we went to the board and we we asked the board um, that we intervene because we knew already that there were people who were going to die of uh, of hunger. We then uh, initiated a project called Each One Feed One, um, where we got uh, people to contribute towards uh, feeding um, others. And we received uh, donations uh, that ranged from someone who would give 20 rand to someone who would give a million. Sure. And, uh, and, and that's what we then were able to do with the Colisi Foundation and in Bumba Foundation. And I think uh, uh, that work that we were able to do in that regard was work that I think will go down as uh, one of those impactful uh, 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 initiatives where uh, the board said, go and find those that the cameras won't find. 
So we didn't just go to the urban centers, we went to the rural, most rural of places. That in one community we were trying to send the GPS coordinates uh, to some of our colleagues to join us. And the GPS said, you are in the middle of nowhere. And those are places that we visited. And we were able to feed about 100,000 families um, during that period. Uh, of 2020 alone. We continued to do that in 2021. So during hard lockdown, I drove over 25,000 kilometers. Um, I, I think I, I, it's true to claim that I, I saw most of the corners of our country um, that many would uh, visit. Um, where roads are just impossible to 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 traverse, and we we went to those to those communities and were able to feed them. So that's the third um, highlight, I'd say. Uh, but there's many more that I think um, one looks back uh, and one thinks we could have done more. No. But in the ten years of my uh, uh, tenure at the foundation, I was able to at least uh, lead a team of very determined, particularly young people. Um, I, my, the team I led was uh, very, very young. Pointed myself uh, at a very young age of uh, 37, and many doubted that I would be able to do the work uh, because of how young I was. <laughs> and uh, and one is, uh, is happy to say that without blowing one's uh, own trumpet, that one was able to at least try one's best to deliver the legacy to as many people as possible. I was talking there with Sarah Matang, and we will remind you when Mandela Day is coming up, July the 18th. And as Silo said, one of the, the brands of the foundation is make every day a Mandela Day. We can all still be so proud of Nelson Mandela and the heritage he left for us. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles. Kate Turkington has traveled there, and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM, Kate Turkington. And now, of course, it's time for books. And I sat down last night, and in I do read very quickly, in about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, I read a book that will stay with me forever. In some ways, I almost wish I hadn't read it, but there you are. The story, it's a story of the Holocaust. It's called The Survivor by Joseph Lukovitz. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. If I'm not, please somebody let me know. L-E-W-K-O-W-I-C-Z, Lukovitz. It's called The Survivor. He survived. He survived six concentration camps. Six concentration camps. And he became a Nazi hunter. And he was responsible for bringing down and bringing to trial one of the most notorious Nazis of the day. And if you remember the film Schindler's List, you'll remember the really evil, really evil, in the in the most powerful sense of the word, was um, played by uh, Ralph Fiennes, that dreadful commandant of the camp who would shoot people for his pleasure, who did the most unspeakable things. And in fact, 
Joseph, after he after he was um, after he survived, I suppose, he hunted down this man Amon Gut, G O E T H. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Who's that very swift, random brutality was, I don't know if immortalised is the right word, by Ralph Fiennes in the movie Schindler's List. The preface to the book is by Rabbi Naftali Schiff. Naftali Schiff. And he starts off by saying, a starved, enslaved and beaten teenage boy surviving six major Nazi concentration camps is almost unheard of. I mean, this book, he says, is already unique for that alone, and it'll keep you asking how, how an orphan, his whole family was killed by the Nazis, by the Germans, how an orphan alone survived by stealing potato peels, scraps, he was humiliated by his captors who murdered his entire family, how he how he maintained his humanity and his dignity. And how did he do it? He had this mantra, I must not become an animal like them. I must not become an animal like them. He's still alive today. He's in his 90s. And when the rabbi and the author, he did it with a very well-known author, Michael Calvin, when he was asked would he write a book, he said, no, no ways, I'm, I'm not interested. I'm interested in having hunted down so many Nazis. I'm now interested in going around, talking to people, talking with my grandchildren, talking about be kind, keep your humanity, whatever circumstances you're in. He He witnessed... Uh, he witnessed unspeakable horrors, some of which he writes about in the book. That's when I say I almost wish I hadn't read the book because some of the things he describes will stay with me forever, and I thought I knew quite a lot about the uh, Holocaust. So when he was finally liberated, the last concentration camp he was in was Ibensee. When he was liberated at the end of the war, he discovered he was the only member of his extended family to survive that Nazi killing machine. So what did he do? It, it, it's a longer story than I'm telling you. He actually joined U.S. intelligence. He formed a task force to hunt Nazis in hiding, and he rounded up the SS officers at whose hands he and his community had suffered. And it was Joseph himself who discovered Gut, that Amon Gut, his greatest tormentor. He was masquerading as a common soldier, and he helped to bring him to justice. And what I, what I, I, I enjoyed, I don't know if that's the right word, he, Joseph is so honest and human. I mean, when he finally discovers 
this dreadful, dreadful man who killed hundreds at a whim. Maybe he didn't like the colour of their eyes. Maybe he didn't like the way they walked. He just shot people at random. Or he set his dogs on them. A child might be walking past and he'd tell, tell the dogs, go, go get him, go get her. He doesn't pretend that he was full of love and forgiveness. He said he, he actually attacked the man. The man was in rags, masquerading as a former German uh, soldier. And, and Joseph said he went at him, fists, boots, everything, attacked him because of all the hatred that uh, came out of him. Now, that needn't have been put in the book. He could have actually have said, well, we found him and brought him to trial. But the fact that he he admitted, and he, he, said, he said he... It, it, in a way, he almost became like one of them at that moment because he was so filled with rage and revenge, except he wasn't one of them because he, he had a reason. He had a reason uh, for killing. So he dedicated his life since to honouring the victims of the Holocaust. And this book, The Survivor, is Joseph's quite extraordinary testimony. It's published by Bantam. It's called The Survivor by Joseph Lukovitz with Michael Calvin. How I survived six concentration camps and became a Nazi hunter. Auschwitz, Ebensee, Mauthausen, Plateau, Melk, Amstetten. It is an absolutely extraordinary book. And, you know, we've, we've read, most of us have read books about the Holocaust. Uh, there's a series, I haven't seen it yet, I think it's on Netflix, about the, the young friend of Anne Frank who preserved Anne Frank's diaries in Amsterdam. Apparently it's very good, it's, it's had very good critical reviews, I haven't seen it yet. So, most of us have read stories of the Holocaust, but this... This needs to be read and needs to be remembered because it is, it, it's, it's a first-hand account by somebody who actually survived and it's a first-hand reminder to all of us what could happen and what can happen if one group, which is totally against another group, gets into power. It's it's chilling, chilling. And then, just finally, uh, after reading that, I had already read, and really, this is almost going from the sublime to the ridiculous, but uh, the latest crime book by Harlan Coburn, I Will Find You. I'm sure you may have seen the hit Netflix drama Stay Close. Harlan Coburn's been turning out thrillers for almost as many years as I've been alive, and that's saying a lot. He never, ever disappoints. It's called I Will Find You by Harlan Coburn, published by Century. And it, it, it's, it, it's a great plot with a great twist. Very quickly, a man is accused of beating his three-year-old son to death. He's put into prison and... He finds out that, in fact, his son 
is alive and hasn't been murdered and how he escapes from prison and how he finds the real perpetrator of the crime crime will keep you will keep you up long after load shedding by the light of a candle or by the light of uh, a lamp. He never lets you down, Har Harlan Coburn. Harlan Coburn, I will find you published by Century. Okay, that's all for today. I'll be back next week. Look after yourselves, say kind, travel safely. Don't only look after yourselves, please look after others too.